Ayer nació un caracol, un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra. Hello and welcome to the Zapatista podcast, lessons and stories from Chiapas. This podcast is brought to you by the Galway Feminist Collective and Promedios Mexico. This podcast series gives a general introduction to the Zapatista movement of Mexico to those not so familiar with their struggle in the light of their first European tour this summer 2021. We want to give folks in Ireland and Europe an insight into the Zapatistas through interviews with some of those who have worked closely with movement. A quarter of a century on, after the Zapatista uprising of 1994, we want to retrace some of the steps that their struggle has taken on its long and steady road to autonomy, sharing their learnings and obstacles, but above all their determination and creativity to make other worlds a reality. Zapatistas are a Mexican revolutionary indigenous movement that govern many autonomous zones over an extensive region within Chiapas, the southernmost state of Mexico. Zapatistas don't like to be pigeonholed, but they are most certainly anti-capitalist and anti-patriarchal. Some say they are libertarian socialists, yet they have anarchists and communists, Catholics and atheists among them. They practice direct democracy and traditional indigenous ways of organizing. On January 1st, 1994, the day NAFTA came into effect, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement signed by the US, Mexico and Canada, Zapatista women and men led an uprising to halt the ever-increasing death grip of colonialism and its legacy, which has been centuries of poverty and inequality, racism and exploitation. Following the uprising and broken accords by the Mexican government, Zapatistas turned to creating their own autonomy and practicing self-determination. This summer 2021, a delegation of Zapatistas and representatives from various indigenous groups in Mexico are traveling in Europe as part of a world tour. Their European tour coincides with the 500 year anniversary of the fall of Tenochtitlan, present day Mexico City. From July to October, the delegation is meeting with activists throughout Europe. The meetings are meant to horizontally strengthen and multiply the resistances in each place. Once again, the Zapatistas will appeal to our creative consciousness, to see past the reality that Europe and the minority world lives, and to open our eyes to how the majority world survives. The first Zapatista representatives have already disembarked in Spain. Among them, a transgendered woman is helping unfold a massive campaign, urging Europe to wake up to a new dawn and to create other worlds together, beyond capitalism. Hi, I'm Nancy Serrano. Welcome to the Zapatista podcast, Stories and Lessons from Chiapas. Let's begin this episode on community media with the story of the calendar, written by Subcomandante Marcos in his book, Stories of Don Antonio. The story of the calendar. The oldest of our elders say that in the early days, all was in disarray. Everyone would stumble like a drunk. Women and men would get lost because time wavered. Sometimes it would hurry, and sometimes it would roam slowly. Sometimes there was too much sun, and sometimes there was nothing but rain. 
rain falling from above, rain rising from below, and rain even coming in from the sides. All was chaos. The gods, the first ones, the ones who gave birth to the world, saw everything, but spent their time just strolling along, grabbing fish in the river, sucking on sugarcane, and sometimes helping to thresh the corn. These gods spent a long while just watching time pass. Finally, they thought to go to Mother Ishmukane. The gods said to her, Mama Ishmukane, time on this earth is not on a steady course. Sometimes it runs and sometimes it drags along. Sometimes it moves forward and sometimes backwards. You cannot sow nor is it possible to harvest. We are struggling to find fish and the sugarcane is not where we left it. Mother Ishmukane, time cannot go on like this without anyone or anything guiding it. Mama Ishukene sighed for a long time and then said, It is not good that time goes on like a donkey without a rope, causing much damage to all these good people. The gods agreed, it is not right. And they waited a while because they knew that Mama Ishmukene had not finished speaking. She had just begun. Since then, that is why our mothers truly start speaking to us when it appears that they have already finished. After a while, Mama Ishmukani said, Up there in the sky is the guy that time must follow, and time will listen if someone reads it and tells time what follows next. I am willing to read the guide to time so that it learns to tread evenly, but my eyes are no longer well and I cannot see the sky. All were stumped for a while until the god spoke. We think it's a good idea to bring the sky down here so you can look at it up close and read it and unravel the passage of time. Mama Ishmukane sighed loudly and then said, And where should I put the sky? No, 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 no. Don't you see that my hut is very small? No, 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 no. No, 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 replied the gods, and they continued pondering until they thought of a new plan and said, Mama Ishmukane, we think it is a good idea that we copy what is written in the sky and we bring it to you to read so you can adjust the passage of time. Sounds good, said Mama Ishmikane. And the gods ascended to the skies and copied in a notebook the guide that the sky revealed. They returned to see Mama Ishmikane and told her, Here is the guide that the sky reveals. We wrote it down here in this notebook, but it will not last. You will have to copy it somewhere else where it will last forever. And on Mami Mishukani's palms and on the back of her hands, the gods wrote the guide that moderates the passage of time. And that is why the wise mothers have many lines on their hands, so they can read the calendar and make sure that time follows a steady course and that time never forgets the harvest that history sows in her memory. En alta selva y norte la lucha zapatista está gritando fuerte la radio ya está lista.
videos y noticias, mensajes y canciones. Decimos a nuestros pueblos que sigan adelante la lucha. Arriba las resistencias, arriba Radio Libre, arriba las resistencias, abajo las interferencias. The Zapatista movement has produced its own media since the mid-90s. They have produced radio shows, documentaries, educational and cultural videos, music and even a full-length feature film. The Zapatistas have been able to share their struggle and their visions for another world through their creative use of media. And this has helped to create an international solidarity network for their struggle, as well as linking up other struggles, sharing learnings and strategies, and thereby adding strength and hope to movements worldwide. The Zapatistas also produce media for their own communities, in their own languages, revitalizing their cultures while documenting human rights violations, sharing ancestral knowledge and promoting modern technologies and practices. In this episode, I speak with Ana Hernández and Mario Najera, who have both worked with Promedios, a media collective that has worked with the Zapatistas for over two decades in Chiapas, Mexico. We wanted you both to share your experiences with us in community media and the Zapatista movement. Um, I wanted to start with you, Ana. You were in Chiapas soon after the uprising in 94. Could you tell us a bit about what brought you there and what were your first encounters like with the Zapatista movement? At that time, I was working in an anarchist, bilingual and continental newspaper. <laughs> it's very long. And uh, we went there to check with our eyes if all the speech about women's participation in the struggle was true. So we went and we wanted to interview the women. And um, luckily, we have the interview after all the protocols you have to have. You have to follow to have an interview with them because you need permission from the military commandancy. And we got an interview with uh, Commandante Lisa. And it was very interesting because she told us that in the Zapatista army, the women and men were equal in obligations and rights. But in the community, they have a lot of work to do for the women's rights over there in the everyday life in the communities. It's not, too, it's not the same than in the army. Right. So at work as such, they had basically equal rights, but at home, it was still a work in progress. That's that's quite interesting. Yeah. And um, I believe then after you decided to, to stay a while and accompany the Zapatistas in their communities, can you tell us um, how that was and how you first got involved then in Promedios? I was living for two years in, the, uh, in a Zapatista community. And I learned, obviously, about the everyday life of women. And I knew that women doesn't participate too much in the workshop because they don't don't speak uh, Spanish. They are not bilingual. They only speak their own language. And also they are very shy with the outside people, especially if they are men. So I, um, I thought it was a nice thing to do, to teach a new language that was this uh, filming thing. It's a new language at the end probably will encourage more participation from women 
if they saw another woman uh, giving the workshops. That's that's why I joined uh, Promedios. That it was already a group format to wanted to work and teach media in the Zapatistas community. Okay, so that was the beginnings for you with Promedios and. Um, Mario, you came to Chiapas a good bit later in 2010. That's 16 years after the initial uprising. Can you tell us what brought you there and what were your first encounters like with the movement? Yes. Well, my background is in community media. I worked in New York uh, for a public access television station. So we worked with uh, different nonprofit organizations and collectives, uh, usually homeless people immigrants, uh, marginalized communities. Since the 90s and the early 2000s, uh, I was aware of the Zapatista movement, and it interested me uh, very much. And I was aware of the communication project that they had in, in Chiapas. So when I arrived in 2010, I began as a volunteer, and I began giving trainings. What impressed me the most, I would say, is the, their level of organization and discipline. Initial trainings, I remember, you know, going through military checkpoints. And when you got to the government center or the caracol, as they call it, uh, there were, you know, there's certain protocols because they couldn't just let anyone in. The other thing that I noticed is the, um, the discipline of the promoters. They they came from afar. They They were farmers. And they would rather be farming, but they saw the importance of this project. Okay. Well, we're going to talk a little bit later about how they... Um... They formed their media groups. And um, I wanted to ask Anna first, um, Can when you were there at the very beginning, I wanted to ask you about how the Zapatistas, what did they think of the mainstream media reporting that was coming out um, in the early days, especially with their strong focus on Subcomandante Marcos in the media? They were fed up with all this attention on him. National and international media put emphasis on Marco in a discriminatory way because uh, they leave them in the background like the Marco subordinates and they don't put attention in the real fight, in the real uh, struggle of this uh, and the protagonism of the communities in the fight. Okay. Well, yeah, I suppose that's what mainstream does. They look for the hero figures looking like he was... Um, in control of of this new movement. Well, Mario, I wanted to ask, considering how the Zapatistas already were very aware of how they were portrayed in this mainstream media, be it national and international, I can see why they probably didn't trust how they were reporting their struggle. When the Zapatistas initially asked for the media training with um, the Promedios being formed, what did they need it for at that point? Um, seeing as, well, lots of indie media people were reporting on the struggle at the time. Well, let's go back a little bit. After the uprising of 94 and throughout the peace negotiations between the Zapatistas and the government, the government acted in bad faith. The government kept setting up military checkpoints and they regularly displaced Zapatista communities. So the original idea was to document the human rights violations they wanted visual proof because their word wasn't taken seriously by the Mexican authorities or the public in general. Because Mexican society has a racist has racist views okay. about the indigenous people. Now, so you have independent journalists and Zapatista supporters 
and they recorded these military interventions and human rights abuses. Now, the Zapatista communities began seeing the cameras, the video cameras, as a useful tool, but they didn't want to depend solely on the outsiders to make videos for them. They wanted to learn how to use the video cameras. So filmmakers from uh, the United States, Mexico, Oaxaca, they offered to give video workshops. The group in Oaxaca is very interesting because they were filmmakers and they were already making videos. So it was good to uh, for one indigenous group to go help uh, another indigenous group. And the first trainings took place in 1998. Right. So four years after the uprising, they started the formal training to do their own media. So tell us a bit about what happened after these first trainings. Sure. After the first trainings, interest grew. There was more video workshops in the different regions. As demand grew, the need for cameras and equipment also grew. And that's where the uh, Chiapas Media Project from Chicago was formed, and they took on the responsibility of fundraising and securing equipment. Okay. And the group in Mexico, uh, Promedios, they formed, and they were in charge of training the Zapatista promoters. So what do you think were the main challenges at the beginning with these workshops? At the beginning, well, I think it was very difficult. There were many challenges. I think uh, many people criticized. They were saying it's better off giving them corn and beans, which is what they really need. People didn't see the value of communication, considering that uh, communities had no electricity. No electricity, mm-hmm. yeah. There, there, were, there were many challenges, but eventually they realized that it was important what they were doing, and they had to have the trainings uh, in the few places where there was electricity, and if they didn't have electricity, then with the petrol generators. Well, that's, yeah, I suppose you can get the generators up to where you need them. Anna, I wanted to ask you um, about the the women in the Zapatista movement, because, well, we know that the Zapatistas have always emphasized the rights of women from the beginning. How have you seen like the level of participation of women um, among the media promoters? How has that evolved over the years? As I said at the beginning, it was very difficult because of the language. But where we see more uh, participation is in the areas. Like in Oventic, it was rule or it was working uh, the Major Ana Maria. She was in charge of that area, in charge of this area. You can see a lot of more participation on women because they have this role model, and because women in the Zapatist army encourage the women to participate more in their communities in everyday communities. So it really works to have women in in view of other women, like to have the role models there. Yes, in some areas it was less, and in other areas it was uh, more. And also it depends on the closer to the cities, more women participate because they are more bilingual, because they have to deal with people from the outside. So yeah, it's a lot of factors. <laughs> but, uh... Mario, um, I wanted to go and ask you about your experience in the actual workshops with the media promoters. What was it like to do these trainings with them? Right. Uh, I guess you can't help but notice the slow and deliberate pace that they work in. While facilitating, uh, you wouldn't go to the next activity until every promoter understood mm-hmm. the concept, right? So many times if a student didn't understand, others would gather and they would explain it to that promoter in their own language. Oh, okay, so they would translate. Right. And trainings would take two or three times as long because did- of the constant translation, yes. 
was that a little frustrating for yourself? Not at all. Not at all. It it it, it was beautiful to see because the, the point is that learning takes place. Actually humbling to see. The other thing to consider the the promoters, they're farmers. Mm-hmm. I guess what I did, I tried to relate that the content to their reality using animal and uh, harvest metaphors, which Did they get it? <laughs> I think I think it worked. Maybe I overused it at times, but I think it worked. I also try to relate the trainings to their struggle and the def- defense of their land. As I I noticed, they even create new way to wo- to name the words, the w- technical words we were using, like out of focus is another thing. Um, I don't know if Mario can put some examples because he's more familiar. <laughs> well, yes. For example, you would say out of focus. And what does that mean to indigenous people? They don't have that word in their language. So True. you have to say something like um, blurry. That's something you can't see clearly. So you, you had to explain that and, and, and show them. Mm-hmm. And then they would have to come up with a word. In their own language. In their too. own language to understand that concept. Yeah. But that's that's a that's a good uh, methodology on their part. Um. I mean, it looks like they they definitely applied some natural popular education methods in the classroom scenario. Um, What would you have seen as other kind of big challenges that you faced? The biggest challenge, especially at the beginning, is the lack of immediate feedback. You ask a question and they just nod or they smile or they just say yes and some things tells you they didn't quite understand that. No? That sounds like other <laughs> students I've come across, but yeah. <laughs> right, they're not accustomed to the conventional classroom setting. How did you get them to answer? Well, I found out that asking wasn't the best method. Okay. Uh, you had, they had to demonstrate their knowledge in a more practical way. Okay. So, for example, if you ask them how does this camera work, uh, then they have to pick up the camera and show you. Right. And that's how you you knew that they understood the concept. Oh, okay. So basically, yeah, vocalizing what they had understood about the camera wasn't as good as showing you, basically. Right, but also you could also draw it out. That's true. I mean, we used a lot of visual aids, a lot of the drawing. I would draw, they would draw it, so we made sure they understood. Right. That sounds like that should go on in most classrooms, actually. Not just uh, the conventional classroom should be dead. <laughs> that's that's great. So when the Zapatistas began training their media workshops in their collectives, um, I know that their communities, well, they're very in remote areas with difficult access routes. It seems like a big undertaking to try to provide like a media coverage for that kind of wide territory. Can you tell us a bit about how they've managed to do this? How do they organize their media groups? With organization and discipline. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they're organized by region. They have, well, they used to have five main regions. Now there's more. They have 10 to 20 promoters per region. Okay. They work in shifts, either weekly or four-day shifts. And each, each region is different. In any case, they had to travel from afar. Okay. And in routes that were maybe once or twice a day. Okay. Well, that sounds like a lot of Irish bus routes, actually, in the countryside. Mm-hmm. So they are all, basically they're all farmers, really, and then they come and they do one shift a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They're selected by their communities or their regions, and as you said, they're mostly farmers. So when they're on their shifts, they leave their communities, and their communities have to tend to their farming duties. That's good. So basically, at home, their communities help them out. Um, while they're 
trying, they're doing their media work. I I want to add something about this and have to relate it with women is because we have to think about their they have the field works and the care of the families. So do a media work is more activities for their already ready full activities they have in everyday life. Like go to the fields and take care of the families and feed uh, the communities and the army too. That's true. That's so. It's an ever increasing work list for well, both the women and men to carry out um, within their promoter duties. It's well, and just to add, the women, you know, had to bring their child. If they if they had children, they would bring the youngest children, not not the older, but they would bring their their youngest, the babies, the infants. They would take them to the to, workshops. To the workshops. Okay. And then the other women and the men would help, you know, take care of that of that child. If she had to explain something, I've seen many times to pass it to to men, and the men had to tend for that uh, to, uh, to that infant while she was she was uh, doing something on the computer or had to film. And they they pass the the baby around <laughs> during the trainings. Yes. So social babies, communitarian babies. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes a, a village to rear a child, as they say. Um, that that's that's kind of cool because that means the well, although they had extra duties as media promoters, or they have extra duties, the the actual carrying out of their their duties also help them well break their gender roles maybe um by just the practical uh the practicalities of yeah doing the workshops together so tell us what typically they would do on one of their shifts as media promoters yes they would do trainings they would also go and record they would record uh, plan shoots or they would document urgent matters if there was a human rights violation a conflict they would have to go to the community and uh, okay. document that and then they would go back and to the government center and edit they also record audios for the radio stations they would send press releases they would write uh, for their community newsletter uh, do screenings they're busy very very busy and they would check equipment and fix the internet if they had to. Oh, so they they do have internet in some of the communities. That's yes, that's good going. Um, I also know that they would go around to different communities to show the media that they've produced in in different instances. Tell us about how they they do that. Right. So they would visit villages uh, with a projector, a screen, sometimes a cloth if they didn't have a screen. Petrol generator and, of course, petrol, because the, most communities have limited or no electricity at all. Every community they would visit, about 20, 200 people would gather, many from surrounding communities. And they would see Zapatista videos, documentaries, and fiction films. So like a, like a mobile cinema? Like a mobile cinema, yes. I recall one time I accompanied the, uh, the Zapatistas for a screening. They presented videos on agriculture, a water project uh, in Honduras, and finally they finished with Modern Times by Charlie Chaplin. Did they like that? The, how, how, did the, how did it go down with the audience? It was great. It was great. Uh, they loved it. It's, it's a political film. It's, uh, it's funny. And it's a silent film, so there was really no oh, need to no translate. Oh, no language barriers. That's no language barriers. Good choice, actually. Good choice. That's great. That's a, a great way to share media at the community level. 
talk to us a bit about the different types of media that the Zapatistas have produced over the years, because obviously they've been doing media for quite a while. I know some are for their own communities and some are distributed externally. Tell, give us some examples of both. Well, I would start with radio. Radio is their main type of media that they use. Just more accessible. Yeah, true. Technology. So the the Zapatistas have uh, several radio stations, and they're able to broadcast in their own language. And it promotes their culture and their struggle. But Promedio's main focus was in his video. So as you said, they distribute video internally within the Zapatista communities and externally to national and international audiences. So in terms of the internal videos, they document human rights violations, they record meetings, testimonies, land disputes, and other conflicts. They also do their, their own ceremonies, festivals, and rituals. Oh, that's nice. And, and they do educational videos for their schools, for their health centers, and their women cooperatives. Wow, they make good use of it. They've lots going on. And what about the, the external videos? I'm sure we can see some of them on YouTube. Um, right. They, the they've done mostly their short videos in the documentary form. Uh, okay about education, health, land, agriculture, justice, autonomy, gender issues. They've produced a 19 DVD compilation set of these videos, and many received international film festival awards. That's brilliant. So there's quite a catalog to go through. Um, and how, did they dis how, how do they distribute their videos? Well, they're online. Promedios has a YouTube channel or through Facebook. Uh, we sent DVDs to the U.S. and Europe to collectives who distributed them. And some still do. We're about to listen to a clip from a documentary that the Zapatistas produced called The Land Belongs to Those Who Work It. And I was wondering, Mario, if you could tell us a little bit more about this scene where some government officials arrive uh, at a community where a land dispute is going on. Well, the Zapatistas produced a video to document a non-going land dispute with a neighboring community, basically a paramilitary community backed by the government. In the scene, the government officials arrive to the community unannounced and say directly to the Zapatistas that they need to leave this land and that they will give them another piece of land. And the land is disputed because it's next to a large tourist attraction, Aguasul. The government uh, wants to control this land, and the scene shows each side's argument, but specifically the Zapatistas' determination that they will not leave this territory. And now we're going to hear that clip. We come in order to talk with you and hear your position at this time regarding the irregular settlement that exists here that you are occupying. We will tell you our position. We are never going to leave. All of us present here, with our children, with their wives, we will never leave. That is our decision. Why? Because we have our demand that the farmer needs land. Somewhere to eat. Somewhere to live. That is the idea. That is our thinking, gentlemen. Authorities. We're not stealing. We're not criminals. We are none of these things. No. What we need is land, gentlemen. 
brothers. May I say a few words? Look, I come from Aguasu. As you said, we should respect each other equally. But in this case, you're not respecting me. We didn't just get this land. We've had it for more than 26 years. It's where we have cultivated our crops. We've just moved our people from the edge of the river to over there behind the mountain so as not to harm these 500 hectares. Brother, it's fine that you say you own these 500 hectares and have documentation. If the government doesn't interfere in this affair, and if you're worried about the land, we can resolve this later. If it's true that you're going to work the land, that's fine. What we don't want is the government on the land. That's the only thing. There is nothing else. But if you're only asking so that the government will come and put in an eco-tourist zone, that we will never permit. But if you really understand our rights, our decision, and what we want in our hearts as Zapatistas, then you will understand that this is Zapatista territory. The government's strategy is to give the land to indigenous groups that accept their projects and use them to make it easier because the government knows it cannot get the lands directly. Well, like you said, as Zapata said, the land belongs to those who work it. That's true. But each piece of land has an owner, yes. And so eventually we have to deal with that. If we talk about rights, we are going to talk about other kinds of things. But I understand your ideology. I respect your ideology. I am going to tell you what Zapata said. The land belongs to those who work it. We already understand what it means. It is our land because we work it. Look at the farmers who are here. They're cultivating the land. I feel that at some point, some land will be put up for sale and the government will acquire it to give it to you. I would like for this not to remain just as an offer, but that it would be something more concrete that the government sees. How many compañeros are they? What are we working with? So that we can find a complete solution to the problem. You know what happens with the government? I don't know if you remember that the communities of San Sebastian and San Geronimo requested land from the authorities. What happens with the government? It never gives a solution to the land, to the people. That is why we, as Zapatistas, no longer want anything from the government. Have they ever done any fiction production? Uh, Anna can answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you, Anna, the, the, about the, the big fiction film, well, yeah, fiction film that they produced, Cor Corazón del Tiempo, which translates as the, the Heart of Time, which was released in 2010, I believe. Um, and you were part of the process, Anna, um, in the making of it. Can you tell us a little bit about how that community media process to make a film was like with the Zapatistas? It was such a wonderful experience for all everybody uh, involved there. It was a very long process. Herman Bellinghauser is a, it was a journalist uh, from the National Mexican Newspaper and Alberto Cortez, a Mexican director. Alberto Cortez was uh, per, uh, showing 
movies in the Zapatistas community, but in real 16 millimeters projectors too. Okay, old styles, yes. And they wrote this uh, script, and once they have the script, they show to the Zapatistas uh, authorities, and it took 10 years after the script was approved, because it had to be first, as I say, by the military command, and once it was approved for them, they passed to the, the communities, and once they approve, they have to say where, where and who will be perform the, the movie, because it was a co-production. It was a very interesting thing because uh, I don't know many experience of one armed group in the middle of the war was producing a film, not a documentary, but a fiction. <laughs> wow, yeah. So it took just over 10 years, really, from from the script writing to the making of it. And you're right, like making a, a film in the, in the middle of a, of an armed conflict still was quite a challenge. It's a love history. It's the pretext to, to tell the struggle of the communities to the voice of the, the experience of the three women and all, all women, a young woman and a little girl. So they represent themselves. So it was so, so beautiful, such a beautiful thing because it, it, at the end they were, we were building the everyday uh, movie. It was, it, at the end, it, I think, was a little bit like a docu-fiction. We have a script for a fiction, but um, at the same time, we were representing their struggle. That's true. And, well, in that possible style, like you said, that it was rubbing off the docu-film um, style. Um, tell us a bit about the, the, the real scene that happened with the tank um, in the film. That was amazing because... Um, the, the Mexican Federal Army put a checkpoint outside of a Zapatista community. So just to protect them and to, and to show the strength to the Federal Army, the Zapatistas communities stood guard in solidarity with this community. One night, the compass who were the Zapatistas who were working in the community came very seriously and told us, we can't work tomorrow for the film because we have to go to do our guards in this community because... Um, it was their turn to stand guard. Yes. And we say, and what about if we use the production trucks and you can use it as a way of trans the transport and we can go with the camera, we can we film. So we did. <laughs> And it's really true. It's, it's a documentary, like uh, the compass starts star go out of the trucks. And when the camera, you know, the, the 60 millimeters camera, it's a big camera with the steady cam and the, and the Zapatistas protecting us. When the soldiers from the Federal Army saw the camera, they just run. <laughs> They'd never seen such a big camera, I'm sure. And it proves that they really helps to have this uh, tool to prevent human rights violations because uh, they know they are filming, they can do anything they want. True. So you, you helped in that instance to, to protect that community by chance during the filming. Um, tell us a little bit um, about the, the film festivals that um, the film was received in. 
The film was um, funded too by San Sebastian Film Festival, and uh, we, they project them there, and in Sundance Film Festival, and also in a festival in Brazil. I don't remember the name, but they have, we want the audience uh, reward. So, so it had a, a good reception as a as a small production in internationally, it seems. And in, in Mexico, how do you think, how was it received? Or in the actual Zapatista communities as well? <laughs> it went amazing because, as we say, Zapatistas had a boycott from the regular media. But we were able to present it a national level in the regular cinemas. And we jumped this uh, blockade they have to the communities and... And we create some divas too, because now the people, when we, they go to the communities, they recognize the, the, the granny, <laughs> and they say, she's in the movie, she's in the movie. And in the Zapatistas communities, they love the movie. They are very proud of them. A great community experience for, for making the film, I'm sure. Could you tell us, Anna, um, could you walk us through the clip we're about to hear from the film, where the community are um, in an assembly? So... We tried to do anything when the community, Sonia had to defend her right to choose she marry, be married with. And uh, in the same time, they have this threat of the military coming. So it was uh, parallel. They're doing the decision making and their militaries are coming to attack their community. So we tried to present that kind of conflict. It was real at that time. Okay, and now we're going to hear that clip. Compañeros, pues vamos a vamos a empezar. Ahora pues tenemos un problema. Good afternoon, compañeros. Let's start now. We have a problem here that we cannot solve. With your permission, compañeros, I will express my concerns since I have the authority from the community and the families. We are concerned with the interference with our custom by our fellow insurgent who came and fell in love with the, with the girl who is duly requested, who was going to marry my son. The Zapatista army has to answer for this interference of the agreements between families that were made in complete peace. The kids said that they loved each other and agreed to the wedding. As family members affected by this mess, we need to know what is the responsibility of each person. The girl has to speak clearly about the responsibility that she assumes with her decision. As the fiancé's family, we know that it is appropriate to repair the damage. We are going to return the cow and a load of coffee and corn to Ruben. Apparently, Sonia has to request to be admitted to our Zapatista army. If she so determines, she will go to the mountains. The tradition has changed. We are not the same. In our years of suffering, of struggle, we saw problems differently. 
Now the young people decide. Sonia, my daughter, has decided to follow an insurgent. She has to know that she leaves resistance of the communities to fight in the war of our liberation. We, by deciding to make our organization, have taught our children to live free for many years. It is insurgents don't speak. I request that they respond. Good afternoon, compañeros and compañeras. The Zapatista Army of National Liberation accepts before this assembly the commitment and takes responsibility as it is customary. If a community girl leaves as an insurgent, that means that she is going to follow him into the mountains and she has to prepare herself to become an insurgent. This isn't the way that it's going to be, compañeros. One has the right to decide for oneself. The compañera has something to say? The marriage, although at first I thought that I wanted it, it was an arrangement without my consent. But it cannot be that they force us as women. We are also in struggle and in the resistance. We deserve to have a voice and have our freedom. Men and women should decide equally. And I had already said that I didn't want to be an insurgent. But I do love Julio. It's true. Compañera, does this mean that Compañero will put down his arms and that he is going to serve the community? No, it's not that. We all have our place in the struggle, as individuals and as communities that we are. I know the problem is that I love an insurgent, but I do know how to fulfill my obligations. Brothers, we all trust each other. I asked the assembly for permission to make my decision. Compañeros, we have to interrupt this meeting. We have been informed that the Federal Army is coming. Compañeros, we know what to do. Let's move. Quickly. So Promedios has obviously been working for almost three decades, I think, with the Zapatista movement. I wanted to ask you, Mario, about how their work has evolved since they first began working with the Zapatistas. Right. So Promedios has gone through many different stages working with the Zapatistas. In the early days, we trained the promoters in the midst of a low-intensity war. To say the least, they had a lot of practical training from the get-go. They were documenting military interventions and human rights abuses. In 2000, we began installing antennas so they can have internet. At the same time, the Zapatista began building uh, their permanent communication offices in each zone. Promedios continued regular trainings up until 2014, and then they became a little bit more sporadic. Today, the Zapatistas run their own major project on their own. We continue providing specific support, such as when the internet breaks down or other technical matters. So is that like they kind of fired you from doing the trainings? <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, yes, they did fire us, but that's the point of autonomy. Since the start of the Zapatista communication project, we saw our role as transient. Our objective was to exist so that eventually we stop existing. In that sense, we have completed our mission, but we haven't dissolved. We've transformed. We continue providing uh, technical training to other communities and organizations within Chiapas. Um, so do you work with these organizations in the same way? We do work uh, in similar ways, but uh, they're smaller in scope. 
we work with organ smaller organizations, uh, human rights organizations, and smaller communities. Of course, now we've used newer technology with cell phones since people have more access to cell phones. So you can record video, you can record audio, you can take a picture, you can you can even write, you can even design from your cell phone. So if they don't have the cell phones, then we provide them with cell phones. But that's sort of the new tool that, that we use. Okay, so you've plenty of other communities to keep you busy with. Yes. Well, this is this is the final question. We wanted to um, ask both of you, what lessons do you think um, Irish community struggles and Irish activists or, or people in different places, not just in Ireland, what, what can we learn from the Zapatistas in relation to community media, how they've, have, how they've been doing it for the last couple of decades? And um, in particular, what changes do you think can happen when communities can tell their own stories like you have seen happen with the Zapatistas? In terms of producing video, radio, the way our society generally operates, you have the, the main media conglomerates, and then you have the public in general, and it's one-way communication. The Zapatista Communication Project is different. It's participative, it's horizontal, and it's collective. They don't reach a wide audience. They're their audience is very specific. It's very targeted. But it reaches most of their communities. The one thing about the Zapatista project is what they prioritize. It's not the product in itself. It's the process. The process of making video. It's the community. Everyone's involved. This is what collective production is. It's, it's everyone's. It's not one individual. They don't put their name on it. Uh, uh, they don't put their individual name on it. And they've used it to stop human rights violations, to preserve their language, to promote their struggle. The Irish can use this in the same way. Ireland is a small country with very deep roots that parallel in the importance of preserving their culture and their language. And they can use that tool in a more collective manner. So, yeah, Anna, what do you think are the lessons that we can learn here in Ireland from the Zapatistas? Well, I think Irish community and activists can use their basic uh, resources and tools to do community media, as well as the Zapatistas. Um, they have shown us that we don't need... Uh, too much money to do it and um, currently we have the to pay the tools to do it even as um, the smartphones can be um, the way the tool to do community media and um, the Irish people has a, also has a huge historical and cultural wealth and they are very talented people as, as far as, uh, as we know and uh, yes, they should uh, go together, uh, all ages, um, all backgrounds, and create the new media that we can enjoy. Now is the time to do it and, and use all these talented, all, all, all the talents and resources that we couldn't 
couldn't have especially the time. Well, thank you, Anna and Mario, for such an interesting conversation. It's been really great to have you on the podcast. I think, as Anna said, now is the time to get working on some community media projects with our friends and neighbours. I hope this episode gives some of you listening a little inspiration to go out and try it and take the power back. Un caracol, un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find a list of related links and resources in our show notes for this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach us at Galway Feminist Collective on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and also via our email address, Collective at gmail.com. <laughs>